Hi, welcome to the Shallow Dive on Derech Eretz Zuta, the Little Book of Etiquette, a collection of wisdom from our sages about how to relate to life. I hope you enjoy. Derech Eretz Zuta, Perk Shmini, Chapter 8, Braisa Dalit, Number 4. Kozman Sha'adam Chote. All the while that a person sins, the fear of people is upon him. A person is afraid of others naturally when he sins. The Holzman Sheeno Chote Moro Al Habrios. Conversely, if a person is not engaging in sin, then he cultivates for himself a godly persona and people are in awe of him. So that the relationship among people is not in a vacuum, but people relate to each other also based on their interactions with God. Meaning that the, the sin over here is not necessarily only interpersonal sins, but if somebody violates the, the will of God, they subject themselves to the dominion of others, and they are afraid as a result of that. Whereas somebody who is, excels in following the word of God, that they're not sinning, so other people are inspired and in awe of that person. And in a, in a broader sense, that person is not subject to their free will. So to, to describe this idea, take a look Famous Misa, famous story what happened with the selling of Joseph. So there was a discussion amongst the brothers what to do with him. And Reuben was, Reuben, the firstborn, he was trying to save him. And in chapter 37, verse 21, the verse states, Vayishma Ruven, and Ruven heard, Vayatzileu and he saved Joseph from their hands, Vayomer, Lo Nakenu Nafesh, and he said, We shall not strike a soul, we shall not murder him. Vayomer Leem Ruven, and Ruven said to them, Al Tishfachu, do not shed dam, his blood. Cast him into this pit. Do not harm him with your hand. Now, the Pasek tells us Ruven's motivation. He says, Ruven's intent was to rescue Yosef. 
So the Orachim explains that Reuben's theological arguments to the brothers were as follows. Pirish, Lefisha Adam Balbachira. And as much as a human being is, is granted free will, we have a choice. God gives us choice. Virasam. We can follow our will. And this is a remarkable point that a human being can be granted such a far-ranging free will that it even extends to the capacity to commit murder. One person's free will can find expression in the murder of an innocent person. Someone who is not liable to death. He says. So Ruvain is explaining to the brothers, you guys have this beef with him, you say that he's guilty and he's trying to harm you. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. But don't think that if you succeed in killing him, that that would somehow vindicate your position. And as much as you have free will, God grants people the ability to, to exercise choice that could even extend to killing somebody, to murdering somebody who's not guilty. And therefore, you, you, don't, you shouldn't do this. It's not going to be an indication like you think that, hey, if we killed him, it must be he was guilty. Archaim says there's, there's no such guarantee. This, in contrast, does not apply to other creatures. Snakes, scorpions, wild animals. They will not kill a person unless they are liable to death in the hands of heaven. Says the, the most dangerous creature, but it will not harm the person who is innocent. But a human being, because he's endowed with free will, could conceivably utilize that free will to murder another human being who is not guilty. And that is what Ruben said to the brothers. Let's, he said, let's, I want to save them, save him from their hands. Pirush miyad havachiri, from the hand of free will. He says that they're trying to prove that Joseph was lying with his dreams, that he has dreams of usurpation, to subjugate his brothers. Ruben says, because you are endowed with free will, even if you succeed in killing him, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove that he was lying. The, the fact that you have free choice can in of itself be utilized to negate what should have been, as it were. Tivatel hadavar. 
So you guys could, could step in and decide to murder him and it, perhaps even be successful and therefore make sure that his dreams don't come true. That doesn't mean he was lying. It's not, not a proof. However, if we throw him into the pit where there are snakes and scorpions, well, that's, that's different. They do, not, they do not have free will. Although they may be vicious creatures, they're actually not able to do, they're not endowed with this capacity to cause harm to a person who is not liable. So I have a question. Yeah, there. please. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Uh, about, so if the snakes do not have free will, how did the snake, uh, how did the snake jump deep? Oh, certainly he was doing the bidding of his creator. He, w he was sent, not as a, a free agent, so to speak, but sent on a mission to make it a, uh, a challenge for them to follow the word of God. He, he was not acting independently. So, which, I, I, I missed the part where which animals are responsible to have free will and responsible for the death penalty and which ones are not? Well, n no animals are uh, responsible in the sense of having a choice to kill a human being that is not liable in the hands of the heavenly court. That's what the Orachim says. Only people are endowed with free will and the capacity to, to, the capacity to murder someone who's actually innocent. However, there is a, a halacha that if an animal commits a killing, the animal needs to be killed. So th that's, that doesn't mean that the animal is in... Uh, I mean, it will get killed, and, and there are laws of how to go about doing that, but it's, it's not as a punishment for its free action. It's not like uh, capital punishment in the sense of, of bringing the animal to justice for its crimes. It's not, that's not what's going on. But this herd does prescribe killing an animal that has killed a human being. The herd does, does say that. But, snake, but snakes and scorpions are not be killed over that, right? Oh, no, 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 no difference, no difference. All animals are, are subject to that killing, killing the animal if they killed a human being, but they don't have free will. So snakes, scorpions, doesn't matter what, bears, dogs, cats, whatever it is, it's not endowed with free will, and therefore it can only cause harm if it is, if the person that it killed was liable. In the, in the heavenly court. So if the person is not liable, the animal will not kill it. That's correct. That is correct. Wow. So that's, that's what uh, Reuven was saying, that if we throw him into the pit and he is spared, then that, that would be an indication of his righteousness. If we throw him into the pit and he is killed, that would prove that he is liable to, in the, to the hands of heaven, as it were. Because the, the creatures, the snakes and scorpions, are not able to kill if he's not guilty. And the level of guilt, you know, it's uh, in the hands of heaven. It's, it's not the, the earthly court 
But still, they, they don't have the, a choice. Animals do not have free will. And the extent of free will that human beings have is remarkable. It's free will to kill, to commit murder, even against an innocent person. And that's, that's, this idea, as surprising as it is, is explained in the Rambam, in the laws of tshuva, that a person is granted free will. God does not decree upon a person to be righteous or wicked. Gemara says, Hakol Everything is in the hands of heaven, except for the fear of heaven. Choosing to fear God or not is the domain of humanity. So, the Rambam continues that there are all these laws of nature, and don't be surprised that a human being can choose whatever he wants to do. That is also a law of nature, as it were. Don't think that the human being is acting in violation of God's will. God's will is that people have choice. So that's, that is uh, a, a feature of empowerment that humanity is endowed with. And that leads to an, another, another facet of, uh, of complexity. There, there are different levels of righteousness. In theory, the Mechamelio explains, in theory, if somebody is supremely righteous, then they will be awarded divine protection even against the free will of another person. So there's, there are different levels of divine providence. And the basic will of God is that we have choice. Humanity be given choices. And if, often that entails, as we said, the choice to murder even. But if somebody is more righteous, not just not liable, but supremely righteous, then that could supersede another person's free will. So if somebody is totally clean of any sin, he does not have the fear of other people. He has nothing to fear from other people. He is not the tool of their free will. If he's not just not guilty, but superbly uh, following the will of God, Morabrius, he, sa he says the, the dynamic is the opposite. He has nothing to fear from other people, and people will be in awe of him. It'll be a, a native sense of awe. I, I remember hearing a story about Rav Moshe Feinstein, that he was walking down the street, and there was a basketball game going on, and it was a bunch of uh, swarthy fellows that spent most of their time shooting hoops, and this is what they did. That this, they we're not talking about necessarily the highest caliber of development of humanity. And when Rav Moshe walked by, the game stopped. And 
the ball was continuing to bounce, just they weren't playing, and they were just marveling, just perceiving Rav Moshe Feinstein. They were in awe of him. He didn't say a word. They didn't say, he, they, they weren't uh, noticing something he did per se, but they were in awe of his fidelity to God. It was an awe-inspiring experience. So, so that is the, the converse. If somebody is on that level, so yes, Nimrod, the most powerful man in, in the ancient world, can try and throw Avram Avinu into the fiery furnace. God says, I've got better ideas. Let's make sure that it's perfect air conditioning in there. Right? That does, that's uh, on, on a, a high enough level of righteousness, a person can transcend the dangers of being subject to other people's free will. And all that denigrate, even in one facet of the divine expression, is liable to spiritual excision. For the word of God, he has denigrated. So the, the juxtaposition is important, I think, in terms of understanding the, the level of culpability. We're talking about somebody who has not sinned being either subject to other people's free will or not being subject to other people's free will. This is a very high bar. What does it mean exactly, Dvar Shambaza? The, the liability of not treating the word of God with proper respect, it's, it's, it's an extremely high bar of, of what's required. If a person has the capacity to engage with the word of God and decides that they're not interested, so there's a certain degree of baza. They're, they're denigrating it. It's, they don't value it. That's, that's you say, you know, is, that the, is that such a terrible crime? Remarkably, it, it cuts to the core of what we as human beings endowed with communication from God. It cuts to the core of what we are meant to do, to elevate ourselves and the purpose of completing our divine image, we, we need to connect to the divine communication in order to, to build ourselves. So if there's some aspect that we're not taking that with the, the import that it actually has, it's, it's a fatal flaw. Take a look. How does the Ramam actually speak it out? The Ramam in Hilchus Talmud Torah, the Laws of Terror Study, Chapter Three, 
paragraph 13. So in the middle of the halacha, he says, And every home that does not have the words of Torah heard within it at night, that home is consumed by fire. For the, the word of God has been denigrated. The most flagrant violation of Dvar Hashem Baza is somebody who doesn't care at all about the words of Torah. And similarly, anybody who has the capacity to, to engage in the Torah, to toil in the Torah, and chooses not to, or that did engage in Torah, but then decided he has more important things to do, and he separates himself to Havle Olam, and he sets aside his Talmud Torah as though it were a trinket to collect dust in the garage. That's, that's included. That's included. The sages said, anybody who does not engage in Torah from wealth will ultimately negate the Torah from poverty. And somebody who toils in Torah and fulfills it, even in the, the difficulties of poverty, ultimately will do so from wealth. And that's explicit in the Torah. The curses are brought about as a result of not serving the Lord your God with rejoicing and good-heartedness from an abundance of everything. And instead shall serve your enemies. All the, the curses that follow for, from not doing what we're supposed to do. So the, the imperative over here, the Ramam says it's, it's so critical that the engaging in the Torah requires the right framework to succeed in understanding and incorporating the, the Word of God, the will of God, into our lives, it's not, it's not just a, a dry uh, program that you have to download. It needs to be absorbed. Besimcha levov has to be absorbed in rejoicing and good-heartedness and merov ko, in an abundance of everything. A person who has the the breadth of of uh, not being pressured. They have the ability to actually engage in the Torah. That's that is an important tool. Having wealth is an important tool, and the the wealth here doesn't mean 
how high up he is in the Forbes 400 list. The wealth meaning that he is not restricted by the, the pressures that he, he doesn't know where his next meal is coming from and he's having a hard time focusing on the Word of God because the hunger pains. If somebody is, is able to have mirov call, they're able to set aside any concerns and engage in the study of Torah to assimilate it with rejoicing and good-heartedness, that is the, the necessary context to succeed in bringing the Torah into ourselves. It's, it's not a, uh, a side point. The Simchan Tuv Levav Meirov Kol, that is, is fundamental to successfully internalizing the divine will. It's, it's, not, it's not just a, a perk. And we say in the blessings of the Torah, V'ha'arevna, may God make it sweet for us. Not just because we like sweetness, but because that is necessary in the process. To actually internalize the Torah, it needs to be enjoyable. And we need to approach it with rejoicing, good-heartedness, and a sense of, of fullness that we're not distracted, that it's hard for me to concentrate, I'm busy with something else, some pressures, it's that everybody has pressures, but a person needs to generate a sense of contentness to really be able to, to appropriately assimilate the words of Torah. Okay, guilty as charged, but became innocent. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> hey, look, that's great. That's great. Became innocent. That's, uh, I, I aspire to that state. So, so that's, uh, you'll be my hero. Um, mm, don't stick a stick in the Torah. Don't stick a stick what? In the Torah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Which is uh, English Yiddish, by the way. Right. Yeah, the Yushalmi speaks about the relationship of, of Torah, mitzvos. It's, they're different teachings of our sages that help us understand how to relate to studying of Torah and the fulfillment of Torah. So, the Mishnah Perkyavos does say, Lo ela It is not the learning that is the the primary, but rather the deed that is primal. And there, there is certainly truth to that, but it's not the full picture. It's not the full picture. So let's, let's take a look at Peya, and this is, is to understand what it means, to, to denigrate the Word of God. We need to understand how to relate to the Word of God. Vital Montera. Rabbi Rachia, Rabbi Chia, Dikfar, Dechumin. This is in Peya chapter 1 in the Yerushalmi. One of them said, The entire universe is not worth one word of Torah. Meaning that the, the preciousness of one word of Torah 
one idea that is communicated from the divine is more valuable than the entire creation. V'chad Amar, afilu kol mitzvah Whoa. And the other one says, that's nothing. Of course the Torah is more valuable than all the property in Manhattan. In fact, all the property in the solar system. Keep going. But, he says, it's even more valuable than that. It's even more valuable than all the mitzvahs. Whoa. So one word of Torah is more valuable than all the mitzvahs. That's what it says. All the mitzvahs of the Torah, it's not equivalent to one word from the Torah. How, how do we understand that? Obviously, the mitzvahs is the fulfillment of the words of the Torah. So, so what exactly is he saying over here? Let's let's take let's see if we can continue and see if we can get a, an understanding of this. Of course, this helps us, like I said, put perspective on Dvar Hashem Baza, the, to treat the Word of God with appropriate uh, what, value. Uh, yeah, Rabbi Tanhuma. They debated the same thing. Rabbi Abo, Avui de Rabbi Abo, Barmari, Bishem Rabbi Acho, Kos of Echad Omer, the whole Chafetzim lo Yishvuba. There's one verse that says all objects of desire do not equate to it, referring to the Torah. The Kos of Echad Omer, and a different verse says, the whole Chafetzacha lo Yishvuba. And all of your objects of desire are not equal to it. Chafetzim, what are objects? Elu avonim tovos umargolios. Chafetzim refer to objects of this world, gems, precious uh, stores of, of value. Chafetzacha, what are your objects of desire? Elu divreiter. Dersiv ki be'ele chafetzti. Hashem, for in these have I desired the word of God. So what is he saying over here? And all of your, your things are not equivalent to it. Your things, it says, are divrei Torah, meaning the mitzvos. Fulfillment of the mitzvahs are not as valuable on some level as the word of God itself. So the Maraponim is ad- addressing this question, how, how this fits together with, with other statements that put a, an emphasis on action. How, how do you put these various teachings together in a way that's non-contradictory? How do they... How are they meant to be interpreted? L'chera mashmo Da'ay sug yudahokha losvir le Haidiyuka dahasam
Yeah, so he quotes, the, the Talmud says a general rule. There, there are a number of, of statements in the Talmud. One says that anybody who learns Torah without the intent to implement it, even Torah he doesn't have. Torah is not just an abstraction, not like a platonic idea, but it is meant to be implemented in the world. Meant to be brought to life by our, by how we live our lives. On the other hand, when confronted with an option, we could learn Torah, engage in the Word of God to try and understand the Word of God, or we could go and do a mitzvah. We have two choices in front of us. What are we meant to do? So the Gemara says it depends. If the mitzvah is on your shoulders, then you need to do the mitzvah. But if it's if it's a mitzvah that can be fulfilled through others, so you haven't been nominated necessarily to do this mitzvah, so for you, it's a higher potential to connect to the divine will through the Torah. Now, to, to just do so without intent to fulfill the Torah negates the whole Torah. That negates the whole Torah. That's what it says. And somebody who learns Torah but not, does not fulfill it, he doesn't even have Torah. It needs to be Amanas Lasos, but which mitzvahs does a person need to do? Which commandments does a person have to engage in? The ones that are his mitzvahs, when it's upon him, if it's on his shoulders, he needs to do those mitzvahs. He needs to, to take action. If it's something that's an, an option, he could do this, he could do that, it's going to get done. So for him, the, the better choice would be to engage in Torah than to engage in mitzvah. If it's not his mitzvah, that's on his shoulders. So that's, that's a, a way of understanding how these fit together. The Torah is on a higher plane in, in, in a certain degree, but the entire Torah needs to be fulfilled. And if this mitzvah is, is an act that you need to be doing, so that takes precedence. If it's something that, that you don't need to do, it's going to be done. You could do it or could not do it. So then, better to engage in Talmud Torah. First, the preamble. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Entitle them. Let me finish, and then we'll go back over it again. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Okay. So, I'm not sure what he means, or what they mean, when they talk about nature's God, or what was, it, what was the phrase there? Yeah, we separate... The separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God 
entitled them. And I, I don't know, I guess he was more of a naturalist than a, uh, or they all decided in, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a group that because people had different concepts of God, that they would allow nature to encompass the idea of a God. Uh, let's just put it this way. The Shuchena and the, and the, and the Kodesh Baruch. So, so certainly the laws of nature are referenced in the prophets as an expression of the divine will. The, yes. I, I just am not sure. I don't actually know what their intent was. It could be that they're just trying to cast a broader net, like you said, for a deist perspective uh, on the relationship between God and nature. Uh, nature's God. Uh, Anyhow, a reference to the higher authority. Correct. And human authority. It's also a step beyond uh, 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 pantheism. It's, it's a, acknowledging, yeah, it could be a deist, a Jewish, a Christian perspective, um, but there is a God who is God over nature. So the laws of nature are themselves an expression of the, the, the God who essentially rules over nature. That's how I read it. Right. I think that the, the one aspect of the... Let's just say it's a nice package to begin the gift-giving. <laughs> so, so I think that they have a good point in explaining with this preamble why they feel it important to describe the justification for the political severance from Great Britain. And it, it does come down to a, a very profound respect for humanity. They feel that they owe it to humanity to make this declaration of why they are making the dramatic... The recognition that people have a social responsibility towards one another is, is, I think, at the heart of why, why they feel impelled to make this declaration. They owe it to humanity to explain themselves. And that's reminiscent of a, of a very Jewish idea, visim nikiyim. A person should strive to be clean and, and uh, innocent in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man. So in the eyes of man, they want and to justify. The Yehuda, and in the words of Yehuda, and I see paraphrase, Balanced, harmonious for oneself and for everyone. Okay. Harmonious All right. for everyone. So, yes, yeah, so continuing on to the actual declaration itself. Right on. A decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes for that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Anybody? Oh, th- that's what they're going to do, is uh, deal with the perceived injustice that they feel justifies this severance from Great Britain. Yeah. They're explaining their intentions. Is it, is it also a lesson of, uh, more than that? lesson would be the injustices they get committed against them, that they have to explain themselves. 
right? Meaning it's, they're taking it seriously. They're not viewing revolution as just a, a, an option. Yes, revolt, no revolt. It needs to be justified. Revolution is not a blood-free proposition. So there must be justification for it. And they, they feel that they owe it to humanity to describe why they feel continuing in the current political arrangement at that time was not viable. Bingo. Okay, going on? Yes. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, well, let's, let's just work on that for a moment. What do they mean by all men are created equal? What, how, do you, how do you interpret that? Well, they go on to explain it. Yeah. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these, among these, maybe there are more, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. So, yeah, so depending yeah. on that, it seems to be equality of right, not equality of, of, um, of uh, not, obviously not, not numerically equivalent or uh, identically equivalent, and they're not equivalent in education or wealth or status. Uh, or, yeah, they're, but they are, yes, equal in status under the law. So it's expounded elsewhere. In context, it means equal under the law. So you think we should add and endowed with their own uniqueness? Well, it would have been clear if you said they're all equal under the law, but the second clause makes it clear that they're, they're equal in their rights, not necessarily equal in their intelligence or their hair color or their language or ethnicity. But how are they equal within their rights if black people were subjugated to slavery? Yeah, great or question. Well, is that not, not not considered human being, or is or do they have different rights? Well, let's that's what makes. Let's go back and talk about what do they mean by rights? Yeah. Uh -huh. Inalienable rights. Table Mark's objection for a little while, then, so we're not yeah. too confused. But it's an important point. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very important thing at a time. What was Mark's objection? Let's take care of that, and then we can go back to talking about rights. Well, right. no, we should take care of the rights first because then the objection, my objection will follow after that and it would make more sense. Okay. Okay, so let's, let's work with for a moment the first on the list, life. He says that it's an inalienable, inalienable right to life. And I would suggest that from a Jewish perspective, that is far from... Uh, I would say far from the basic, classic Jewish interpretation of, of God's world. Not, life is not an inalienable right from a Jewish perspective. Yeah. And I, I, will, I will bring you substantiation of where I'm coming from, how, how the Jewish perspective on life is. So if you take a look in the laws of Sanhedrin, Chap the end of chapter 18 in the Rambam. So, he speaks about the inadmissibility of confession in a court process. Somebody confesses to a crime, it cannot be used against them, according to Jewish law. 
And really? That's correct. It, a confession of crime cannot be used against them. However, an admission of debt can be used against them. If they, can, if they confess in court, okay, yes, I did borrow $100 and I didn't pay it back. Right? So they have to pay. That is admissible in court. But if they say, I confess that I committed the murder, it's meaningless in the court. So that, that difference the Rdvaz speaks about as follows. To explain this dichotomy. The soul of man is not his acquisition. He does not own himself. He does not own his life. Who owns a person? Who owns his life? The Holy One, blessed be he. As it says in Ezekiel chapter 18, Behold, all spirits are to me, they are. So who owns us? Who owns our life? Our lives? God. What was that? That's something else. That's something else. Here, here he's talking about who is in the possession of uh, human life. It's not the possession of the person who is alive. And that has a lot of ramifications that are controversial right, yeah. today. For I'll give you a basic example, is euthanasia. According to the logical, uh, just carrying out the, the conclusion of what they believe to be self-evident in the Declaration of Independence, if you believe that you have an inalienable right to life, so then if you are the balabas, it's your discretion, you should have the right to end your own life if you have that inalienable right. But according to Jewish law, it's strictly prohibited for a person to commit suicide. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's an important point. And therefore, the, the legal perspective on a confession that can impugn a person if it would be accepted as guilty of crime, if he says, I deserve the death penalty for doing X, Y, Z, the court will say, get out of here. You, you, are, not, you are not entitled to, to say that about yourself. We don't believe you. You're not believed. Get out of here. Yeah, you own your money. If you come you to gotta find a, you gotta find a, a smoother way to say that. A smoother way to say that? Please, yeah. I'm all ears. <laughs> I don't know. You let me know. But if he says the, ex the exclusivity of your presence in this court is no longer required. <laughs> okay, <laughs> if that does things for you. Uh, in any event, if he says that he owes money, though, then they're all ears. They say, oh, you own your money, and therefore, if you say that you owe it, you are believed. So you do own your property, you don't own yourself. So that, huh. you, can't, you, yeah, can't to, you can't confess to a crime of the death penalty, but you can confess to another crime, like of stealing or whatever? So that, that's a good question. If the crime, it depends on the, the, the criminality of the crime. If it entails lashes, it also 
is not admissible in court. So if a guy says, I ate Avram in a chai, I, I ripped off the limb from the animal and I made myself a barbecue, terrible, I feel bad about it. Uh, they will say, you, what is it, your presence is no longer needed in this court? Uh, they're not gonna accept it. The exclusivity of your presence. There you go, the exclusivity <laughs> of your presence. Basically, they'll say, bring witnesses and then we'll talk. But otherwise, we're not administering lashes because you are not in charge. You are not to be believed on something that's not yours. And you, you're... So essentially, what was that? So essentially, you can't confess, so essentially, you can't confess to any criminal act that involves the punishment being corporal punishment. harm that comes to your body. Correct. Now, if, if it would be confessing to a crime that the punishment for that crime would be payback, he says, well, I admit it that I destroyed that other guy's property. So because the result of that crime is a financial obligation, and he owns his money, so he can confess to that and be believed. He is in charge of it. It's under his jurisdiction, so he's believed concerning his own money. So that's, I would say, a fundamental difference from the perspective that is held self-evident in the Declaration from the classic Jewish perspective. That life is not yeah. your own. It's, it's, you, you don't own your life. It's not an inalienable right. You are endowed with life, and you are a guardian of that life, but it is not your life in, in an acquisitional sense, that it's at your jurisdiction uh, to do with, with it as you please. Okay, that brings up something that we ought to try to work on. I yeah, think. please, please, go ahead. Based on, what you just, based on what you just said, let's find a new definition for rights, and, and a little... Uh, a little more uh, humane combination way of leading the flow of the document into the talk about what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, well, what, what he's saying, I agree with, is that um, the, the argument from Revelation and from Scripture does not convince to a person who doesn't accept the authority of Scripture or the uh, the, um, the prophetic nature of, of Torah revelation. And so to approach the question from a na on a naturalistic basis is sometimes good, uh, sometimes useful in a, for rhetorical. So how can we... Do you have any suggestions? Okay. So I have another question. Oh. Really quick. Uh, what yeah. does the word inalienable or the phrase inalienable rights mean? Right. Yeah, we have an attorney here, right? Rib Shmuel? Not me. Rib Shmuel? Paralegal. Paralegal. Oh, paralegal. Okay. So how do you describe inalienable rights? He can't sell his right or give it up or lose it. He can't. He can't. He can't lose the right by virtue of his uh, wealth or status or enter into slavery or in, into serfdom. He always has that right. It's one of those things that like um, applies to the person. Uh, let's just say this: they are endowed by their creator with a certain. 
doing right, that Can I, life, we cannot that, move life from you. that life evolves from the Creator. No, no, no. What does the word inalienable right mean? Because like, like, liberty, pursuit of happiness, I mean, yeah, of course, that's all from the Creator, but the actual mean, term alienable, like, you can't take it away. It, it, or, yes, right. you can't take it away. It's, it cannot be separated, cannot be estranged from these rights. Essential. You cannot alienate it. Okay, perfect. It's essential. Cannot yeah, you cannot right. cannot be alienated from them. Right. Right. So Perfect. thank you. So right, so this this is really the heart of Mark's previous question is if liberty is an inalienable right, how does that square away with their institution of slavery? That that's what well, I think. Well, it doesn't. And obviously it obviously creates a, a vast like hypocrisy and inconsistency in the declaration the way it the way it um officially declared, but Jefferson's own thinking was not inconsistent on the point, on the point because he, he denounces slavery um, very, very strongly. He calls it an execrable commerce, an assemblage of horrors. He calls the slave trade a piratical warfare inflicted by the so-called Christian king of England on the, a distant people who never offended him. I mean, he goes, he very firmly denounces it. So Jefferson's own position is not inconsistent on that. Although uh, he was Africans a he was a slave owner, he himself was a slave owner. Well, he inherited his slaves. He didn't acquire them, and he wanted to. He, he was a he was a slaveholding abolitionist. So he, apparently, he lacked the moral um, courage to to actually do what he believed was correct. He wanted to abolish slavery through a democratic process by convincing the government of uh, Virginia to abolish slavery throughout the state and then to send all the Africans back to Africa. That's what he wanted to do. He did Abraham ready to... have slaves? Yes, that's correct. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's right. He did? Yes, he did. Who? That is correct. Abraham? Our patriarch, Abraham, had slaves. That is correct. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, but you guys have certain rules. Look, 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 look. This whole thing, this whole thing is getting a little bit out of hand. People sometimes okay. work for other people. Employment is, 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 a, is a fact of life. We can get into talking about uh, labor. Uh, this is not a false. This and, is a false and, equivalent. And, and chattel slavery. No, 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 no. We're not talking about that. We're talking about chattel slavery. We're talking about stealing human beings, transporting them into another hemisphere. Not only are they slaves, but for their whole life, that was not Jewish slavery like that. And and what's more is they're um, treated like less than human beings, even in Jewish slavery of 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 course, of, of, we all think foreigners. that was wrong, and we're trying to do as much as. Well, what my point is, it's not a, it's not equivalent or even commensurable with employment or indentured servitude. It's something else entirely. Of course. Go back to the original question first off. Huh, the original welcome. question was, what did they mean by uh, liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Like liberty, does liberty apply to slaves? Because if all men are created equal, does the word liberty or the terminology of liberty apply to slaves? Or take it a step further, like uh, convict. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slave and servant, they're little peculiar words here, right? Yes, so it does, Mark. Some people it does. who were owned, so to speak, by others were merely servants. Others were mistreated. No, but the fact it's of the mistreatment, they don't, they don't have the deserved right recompensation, reconsideration, uh, and no, correction. No, 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 no. 
No, completely opposite. Even with the completely right. Completely opposite. No, even if they were just a ser you know, a servant. Which day are we talking about? With a ser the, the the right of liberty. The right of liberty. If you're a servant, you get compensation for that. If you are a slave, you do not have the right to leave your employer unless your employer tells you that you have the right. So you do not have the right to life or liberty or happiness unless you get happiness within your employer yeah. or that your employer can provide. And the same thing for convictions, like uh, somebody goes and does time, you know, like where's the liberty in that? Or do you lose your right? They still have the liberty to speak. They still have the liberty to talk. They still have the, the liberty to improve their lives. But compared no, to a sometimes it's a crazy two-way street when people communicate with each other and one needs another to help them and they've got to figure out the way to do it. It's liberty is the way of life of people finding a way to get along together. Well, I don't think that's what they meant in the Declaration of Independence. I was just asking about the whole they have the same amount of liberty afforded to them as a regular white male or female or whatever. Right, so certainly what you're now is look at it in Torah terms. Right? Right, try and understand yeah, where we not in terms of how it applies to what happened uh, in a particular bad time in history. I'm not talking okay. about what happened in a bad time in history. I'm talking about at that time we know that slaves existed, so I was just asking the question whether what wh where do we draw the line of that all men are created equal and they get to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Where do we draw that line between women, men, slaves, not slaves, you know, blah, 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 etc.? What do you mean by draw the line? Well, I mean, a slave doesn't have the same rights as a, a, as a, as a non-slave, and a woman doesn't have the same rights back in that day as a non-slave. Today, it's a completely different story, but that's because we had amendments based on what? So, I mean, sorry, going well, back to well, the... To, to the on, wait, wait. Understands this. Yeah. Address the point of Torah slavery. We do find that our patriarchs own slaves, and as Dr. Neal pointed out, there are different tracks of slavery. So what he was referring to is what's called Evid Ivri. Evid Ivri is, a, is probably more akin to an indentured servant who is paying off a debt. Uh, either he willingly sells himself to raise funds for whatever purpose, or the court sells him to pay for his theft. But that's limited in scope, and he does go free at the end of the six years of labor. In the seventh year, he goes free. So that is a, a very limited indentured servitude. There is another institution that is, w without any uh, coloring cruelty of, of the experience of African-American slavery, there is another institution called Evid Kenani, which essentially means unpaid labor, meaning that the person who is in slavery is, do, is, is owes their labor to the master, 
and it is not uh, they're, they're not being compensated for that labor they may have sold themselves into slavery and that was what initiated that relationship but their future labor is not owed to um, to them their their their, their, their compensation um, they need to be uh, they, they, they are fully human beings. They're, they're not viewed in any way lacking in humanity. It's an important point that you raised earlier. They're fully yeah, B'Tselem right. Elohim. And, if you, and, and, right. and as you mentioned, Bishmol, the idea of labor, a person can contract out his labor and work for another person. The fundamental difference in Jewish slavery between uh, an Evid and a Poel. An Evid is a slave, an Evid Kenani, which is the, the type of slavery that is more in line with the, the technical definition of slavery that existed in this country before. Evid Kenani, that slavery is not entitled to quit, whereas a Poel, who's a contractor, is entitled to quit. So if he's not satisfied with the arrangement, he can unilaterally end his employment. That, and that, that is something that uh, I would say is the, the fundamental difference between Evet and Paul, between slave in Jewish law and contractor, both owe their labor, uh, but the continuity of that arrangement by a slave is entirely at the hands of the master, whereas the, the poel has the, the legal right to quit when he wants. Notwithstanding that basic differentiation, the Arach HaSholchan says that in the event that the master tells the slave that he's not going to provide for him, which the Orach HaShulchan decries as the most heinous cruelty. He describes that as, as the epitome of cruelty. If that does take place, so then the slave is legally allowed to flee from his master. So, uh, so yeah. that is an you, important... Kanani. And Evan Kanani, I'm talking about Evan Kanani, the Aruch HaShulchan says, if the master does not ensure that he's in a circumstance that his needs are met, then the slave is, according to the Torah, permitted to flee. To flee, yeah. So there's, yeah, because he's a human being. He is a human being, and he is, his, the rights to his labor, um, similar to a hired worker, who is contracted his, his time out for, for labor. He, he owes his, his time based on the agreement, whatever it may be, but the, the difference in their humanity, there's no difference in their humanity. They're equal human beings, and if there's an mm -hmm. abuse on the part of the master that makes the situation of the slave unlivable, so the slave is legally permitted to flee. So that, that's a, a very important, I mean, he's not, he doesn't own further discretion about quitting in a, in a technical sense, but he almost has a right to quit if it's not livable. 
because he can flee legally. Not just that he can, but he may, according to Torah law, flee. If, it's, if the, the circumstance that the master is placing him in is not consistent with a livable situation. So, so that's, yeah. that's an important balance, or checks and balance, if you will, on this, the, the legality of slavery is it has to be a life, a human life. He's not just meant to be drained of, uh, of every last ounce of strength and then discarded like, like a, uh, you know, a used paper plate. There's a human being here, and he has, he has the right to be treated as such. He, he's owed that. And if, if that mm-hmm. is not forthcoming and he's not being offered and provided for in, in a manner that's consistent with that, although he, he's uh, not able to, um, he's not able to recontract himself out with somebody else directly, he can flee and then he'll be a free man legally. So it's yeah. the, the, the right to another person's labor does not in- include a right to abuse. Very important point. It, it's, not, it's not included in what the Torah, as the Oracle Shulchan explains, proscribes as the master's right over his slave. He has a right to his labor, like an employer has a right to his employee's labor. It's, it's that, the, the, the rights are similar, and the slave is not any less of a human being that, that is the full rights to a livable life uh, in, the, in that context. Uh, I don't know. I'm sorry, Joni, that, that uh, you're having a hard okay. time hearing. Anybody else having a hard time hearing? Everybody? Okay. I can. Yeah? Okay, good. No, okay. I can hear you. Okay, great. Okay, so, so important to understand that in an American system, I think there's an inordinate focus on equating a person's value with his economic impact. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes. I'm very, very Yes. Can I can I interrupt and add something back to the last Please, point you absolutely. Made about an employer being absolutely. And and I would add that if an employee feels uh, any abuse, to use your word, but I would I would, I would say any 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 overbearingness or. He ought not, and in order to avoid that, the the employee uh, ought to feel as though they have every right in the world to tell the employer what to do. It's it's not a a one way street, even for standard employee. The, I, I didn't quite follow. You're saying that the employee's right. Is is to terminate the, the relationship. Employee can t- the employee can tell the employer what to do, just like anybody can tell anybody what to do. It could be considered a suggestion. It could be considered a good idea. You know, right? What eventually happens can can be thought of as God's will. Okay. The 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 primary bargaining chip he has, of course, is to terminate that relationship, and even a slave, as we found. In, in a circumstance that's dire, has the rights to terminate the relationship legally. 
a very important point. But the, the degree of what is within the right of the employee to terminate the re relationship is much higher. An employee can terminate the relationship for, for any reason. It is an important point you raised that not every slavery is predicated on debt, although that is a classic method of becoming an avid, avid ivory for sure. Even Evid Kanani could sell himself into slavery as an Evid Kanani. The classic methodology, actually, of becoming an Evid Kanani is as a captive of war. That actually is a classic uh, case of how slavery could be initiated, of Evid Kanani. We find, uh, we just had in the Parsha, we have the war with Midian, and the captives of that war were consecrated as slaves. Uh, some of them uh, were consecrated. Some of them were uh, given out as part of the spoils of war uh, among the populace, but part of it was, was consecrated uh, as hectish. So that is another method of becoming a slave that is not predicated on debt, that is, that is correct, that it's not only through debt that slavery can be uh, entered into, according to Torah law. And I think that an important challenge that that people have with, as a speculation on my part, but people, the aversion people have to the idea of slavery could be born out of a, an inappropriate focus on economic output as a measure of the worth of man. So if a person equates their self-value with economic output, and that is the, the sum of man for some people, then slavery is depriving them of life. The focus on economic output can lead to a skewed sense of human value, that if that's what the human is, is worth, and he doesn't have his labor, so then you're depriving him of his human value. But the, the human being is not just a, uh, an economic machine. So that, that's something that before you get to slavery, to appreciate the value of a human being, and it's not just what has he done for the economic uh, picture. It, it's, it's in, a, in a broader sense, yishuvo shel olam, the imperative to engage in development of civilization, of, of the human thriving, that is the real imperative of, of the human output, and it's not strictly an economic factor. So, so that's, that is, is very important uh, to, to, to make that distinction from the Torah perspective. Yeshua Shalom does not merely equate economic output and if, if you don't recognize that, so then, then you might misinterpret slavery as be intrinsically dehumanizing, but it is not intrinsically, intrinsically dehumanizing. The Nitziv, in his commentary, Tuberatius, speaks out regarding slavery. Shigam anoshim ke'ele, people that are in, in slavery, yeish lehem olam, they have reward. They also have reward. Fortunate is he in this world, meaning he has, if you will, 
the, the opportunities, I'm not talking about abuses, but he's, he should legally be afforded opportunities to a good life, a fulfilling life, including attaining Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, meaning he can live a life that is fulfilled and good, and the, the fact that his labor is owed to another human being is not intrinsically dehumanizing. We need to recognize also that, that the, the term Eved means sometimes servant, and in, in a generic sense, it means the, the uh, being indentured to a degree that one's labor is due to another. So when we find by the king, in classic, you look in Tanakh, they, can, they call themselves an Eved or a Shifcha to the Melech, you shall be his slaves, the king has a right to conscript. The king has a right to levy taxes. This is, this is an aspect of avdus. It's a facet of slavery where a person is not essentially entitled to decide if they want to pay or not, but there's a certain degree of the fruits of their labor that are taken by the governing body, and, and it's not dependent on their contractual agreement. So that's, that, I mean, not their personal contractual. Yeah. Rabbi? Please. If I can interject an interesting fact in all this with slavery, is the Evid who is freed, who decides that he does not want to be free. You take him to the, to the doorpost of the house opposite the mezuzah, and you bore through his ear. That is an Evid that's going to be an Evid for life. And that's different than the Evid we're talking about completely, and that's a very unique situation where a person is going to be a slave. I don't like the word slave. The, the word evidence is much better. This is evidence for life. So, I just wanted to add so that. So, yeah, to, to, to touch on that point is a very important point. An evid that does not want to go free, it says, the Torah talks about it in Pashas um, Mishpatim, that is an evid ivri. So he starts off as an Israelite slave or probably more akin to an indentured servant that's limited for six years, if he does not want to go free because of his emotional connection, he says, I love my master, my wife, my children, in this relationship, he is entitled to continue until Yovel, which is the Jubilee year, at which point, whether he likes it or not, he must go free. So the Torah recognizes the emotional connections that he may have, even if they're not technically uh, legally correct, when he talks about his wife and children, his children are not technically his children on a, in a pedigree sense, but he's raising them. They are his children, and he feels kinship to them, and the Torah is sympathetic to that and allows him to make that choice. If his pursuit of happiness extends to continuing that relationship, the Torah gives him the ability to pursue that to an extent. Ultimately, he must be rehabilitated and become free again. He, he does need to, to, ultimately, by the Jubilee year, end the slavery relationship. But the Torah recognizes that if he chooses, wants to pursue that, he, he is entitled to do so to an extent.
That's all in Evid Ivri, not Evid Kanani. Evid Kanani is not given such a, a choice. Evid Kanani is uh, a different circumstance where he's liable to keep all the negative commandments. Right? So before he did that, it's, he was a regular Ben Noach. When he becomes an Evid Kanani, a what we call slave, to, for, for lack of a better term, he becomes liable in that process. He goes to mikvah, he, he does an immersion, and at that point becomes liable in the negative commandments. So it's a quasi-conversion. He is no longer a Ben Noach. Becoming an Evid Kanani is, is taking a significant step towards mitzvah observance that he did not have before. So it's, it is a, a whole new category uh, that encompasses his being. It's, it's the status of Evid Kenani is, is um, partial, partially the way towards a conversion, actually. And if he is freed by his master, he becomes fully Jewish. So that, that's an important understanding of, of the, the way the Torah perceives the status of what we call a slave or an Ev- a Canaanite slave. Um, where they they they're, they have a right, as it were, to have a livable life, a life that can achieve for them Garden of Eden, a life that can be a life of goodness, of wealth in this world. They're, they're, they have no, there's no right to oppress them or to deprive them of a good life. That's, that's not part of the, the Jewish version of legitimate slavery. So I think that's... that's so after, yeah. after he becomes an Evid Kanani, yeah. I mean, after the, his time as an Evid Kanani, he becomes a full Jew in spirit, or does he also get the, um, how do you say, the tribe affiliation of his master? So he will not get tribe affiliation, he will get the status of a convert a full status of a convert who also does not have tribe affiliation? Yeah, good question. We don't, yeah. we won't have that in the Muslim church. Won't have what? A regular... Possibly, right. There's a Bryce that says that. Correct. Yeah. Right, so, so I think that's um, important to, to understand that he is given, if you will, certain elements of liberty... As the Oracle Shulchan says, if it's untenable, he also has a right to quit, according to Torah law. Unlike a poel who can quit for whatever reason. If he finds a better job, he can quit if he's just a hired hand. Whereas the slave has to have just cause for quitting. Uh, it has to be that it's an untenable situation, that he is not being afforded a livable life. And the third, the third uh, inalienable, inalienable right of pursuit of happiness, so I, I would describe that as what is called pechir chafshis, which we touched on earlier, of free will. God gives us free will to pursue what we choose as our, our attainment of what we want. So that the ability to choose what we want is... Uh, is like a, a law of nature, the Ramam says. It is like a law of nature. The fact that humans are endowed with free will 
is like gravity. It's, it's built into God's will for creation. So I, I, whether you call that a right or not a right, it's, it's a mitzius. It's a, a, a law of nature. It's a facet of humanity. It's part of what it means to be human is to be endowed with free will. And that applies to slaves as well. You can't command a slave to suddenly keep 365 negative commandments if he doesn't have a free will. He obviously is endowed with free will and he's held to suddenly very high standard uh, of, of being held to the, needing to abstain from all the negative commandments at that point. So the, the, the pursuit of happiness I would, I would describe as, as free will if, you know, what, whenever a person chooses to do something, usually they're choosing to do what they see is in their best interest. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But at the time, it usually seemed like a good idea, even if later they have charate, they regret it, and they ultimately do tshuva. When a person does something, they're usually doing it because they perceive that to be in their best interest. Okay, so I, I think that the next part is, is a significant departure from a Jewish perspective, that the, the rationale for starting government... Who is that? Sorry? What do you hear? Oh, the, the rationale for starting government. Uh, Rabbi Shmuel, you want to read the next part about why government is formed? Yeah. Uh, where are we? I was really uh, being guilty and uh, looking for innocence here. Where, where were we? Uh, that whenever... Uh, after pursuit of happiness. Right, right after happiness? Yeah. That, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Ah, so this is... Governments are instituted. Right, so here, the way the Declaration interprets the legitimacy of government is as being formed to secure these rights, whereas from the Torah perspective... Dinim, which is incumbent upon humanity, it's one of the seven laws of Noah, is an obligation. It's not, it's not a choice to form a government to secure rights. It is an imperative, and a divine imperative, not connected to, do I choose to, to protect my rights through this form of governance or that form of governance? It's the imperative. So, uh, certainly... If somebody is in a position of power and maybe they would be, you know, the, the chief warlord and, and stand to, to be disadvantaged by an equitable system of governance. So according to the Declaration of Independence, well, his inalienable right of life, liberty and pursuit of happiness does not require him to form any government because he's, he's top dog. So he doesn't need to form a government. He could be the oppressor, not the oppressed. He could do whatever he wants. According to the Jewish view, mishpat is necessary, tzedek is necessary, and an imperative, and it, it must be pursued by everybody, not merely as a utilitarian uh, process to preserve the highest rights, inalienable rights for most people, but as an ethical imperative. That we, we must form a government as a divine imperative, that part of the, uh, 
the, the, what God wants from us is to form civilization and a society where people can thrive. That is not going to take place in a state of anarchy. So even if some individuals would benefit from anarchy, it is not an option that people can say, well, I don't, I don't feel like having a government. That's, that's not, according to the Jewish perspective, not a legitimate perspective, even though the implication of the declaration is that that would be okay if it's, it's optional. If, if it helps you, great. So we're talking about a, a create, that, that the creator uh, requires the formation of a government so that the previous conditions might best be met for all concerned. Right. But as opposed to just being a right, it is an obligation, according to Jewish law. In, in, in their perspective, what, what they're, they're declaring as self-evident has no imperative. The old Goyim father's gotten a few things wrong and we're trying to fix it up. Right. Yeah, speaking of, of um, ancient slavery, I think it's another important point to mention that in contrast to... Uh, the modern version that people are most familiar with uh, the, in a distant historical slavery, the Jewish slavery in Egypt, Moses tells Pharaoh, we're going to leave with everything, with all of our flocks. We're not going to leave one hoof here. They were clearly property owners. They had, the, they had their own uh, level of autonomy, but they were conscripted in government service. So they, they were enslaved in the sense that their labor was not entirely their, entirely their own, but was dominantly conscripted. So that's, that's a matter of degree. If you pay property taxes today, so you are renting from the government to some degree. The, 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 in the famine, in the times of Joseph, the people said, we want to be your slaves, give us bread. We want you to take care of us. We are uh, at risk of, of perishing due to the famine. And the result of that was a 20% tax. 20% uh, uh, of the produce, essentially, it was a, a bracket that was commensurate with a degree of servitude. They weren't full slaves, but it was a, a partial fulfillment of what they had agreed to uh, give, help us live and we, we will sell you our labor in perpetuity. So that uh, took form in a 20% tax in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, before Jewish slavery, uh, the, the broader populace in, in Egypt. So the, the degree to which a person is not in charge of their own labor is a degree of servitude. It's not necessarily all or nothing. To, to some degree, a child owes their parents a degree of service. So if, according to Torah law, the parent says, uh, I would like a tea. The child is obligated to make the tea for the parent. That's an, an, he's indentured to that degree. That, that service is owed to the parent whether he likes the parent or not. It's not that he signed up for this. 
So it's, it's a certain type of abdus, a certain type of servitude, but there, there are many different degrees. So the, 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 uh, the fact that a person can own their labor in various degrees is, is not antithetical to their humanity. It's important. People, people need to work. Adam la'amal yulad, person will toil. And the, the slave is not an on-off button. Independent of, 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 of the, uh, the... Yeah, what was that? If you're the son of an Irish coin, we would just call it deference. Deference. Okay. Deference. But it's, in terms of labor, there is an owed labor. Uh, he, oh, yeah. I was talking about the familiar aspect of what you talked about, father-son thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I guess it's it's getting late. But seeing uh, as you now have a, seeing as you now have another adult son, there you go. Now you have an adult son. Correct. Correct. That is right. And an adult daughter. That's right. And they're still indentured. That's right. That's right. But that doesn't make them less human. Doesn't make them any less human. <laughs> they're indentured with deference. There you go. Okay. All right. So we. Uh, we got to cover a good portion of it. I'll have to hopefully finish up next week and pick up with uh, Derech Eretz and Kohelis. Ayashikach. <laughs>